So Paul showed up and he said, this is Jesus, and he baptizes them, and so a church is planted in the city of Ephesus. And Paul ends up staying in the city of Ephesus for about two to three years, preaching the gospel. And it went so great, this church grew over time so that it went from those 12 men that were hanging out to the whole, not only did the whole city of Ephesus hear the story of Jesus, but it says the whole surrounding area of Asia, Asia Minor heard the story of Jesus. It was amazing, it was an amazing, amazing story. So not only did Paul plant a church in Ephesus, but they planted churches all around the whole region. And so Paul is writing back years later to the, to the city of Ephesus and the church. We think it was pretty sure it was a circular letter that was, that was uh, shared with them on the churches in the whole region. And so Paul is writing back to them and he says, hey, I've, let me tell you, again, I've, I've lived with you for two to three years. Let me tell you just how great and awesome God is. And he pours that out from verse three to verse 14. One long sentence, just comma spliced together of talking about how awesome and how great Jesus is, how awesome and great God is. And then he says, uh, he starts praying for them in verse 15, he says, for, there, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about how the acid test of our successful growth as Christians individually and the acid test of whether or not we're going to be a successful church plant, because this is just this is just baby stages. P- people, people ask me all the time, and I would, I would do the same thing if I was them. They say, how's the church going? You know, people who I don't know, people see me, how's the church going? And I, I don't really know how to, how to answer them because it would sort of be like asking somebody who's running a marathon when they're about 100 yards into it, how's the race going? And you're like, well, I've started. I've started, you know, I'm still running. I, I don't know how it's going. I'm 100 yards into it. I haven't injured myself, so that, that's good. But, you know, we're just starting. But the, the test of whether we're successful one year, two years, five years from now, ten years from now, won't be whether we have a large crowd or a small crowd, though we hope the crowd grows. It won't be because of any other reason except for this, that it can be said of us individually and together that we were growing in faith towards Jesus Christ and our love for each other. That's what we call gospel community, and that's the goal that we're trying to build here. When Dale, in, the, in his welcome, he talked about how we're trying to build a culture here. That's the kind of culture that we're trying to build. That's why we're not trying to grow like by, by a microwave. We're trying to grow via a crock pot. Because if you want to build a culture, if you want to build a crowd, you can, you can grow fast. But if you want to build a different kind of culture, you got to crock pot it. It takes time to simmer and grow. Because we don't want to just a, a crowd that shows up on a Sunday morning to hear some guy talk or some band play. We want to create a group of people who are living in deep community with each other, centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ and on mission together. We're trying to build that kind of culture, that kind of community. That's what we call gospel community. And that's what he's talking about when he says that I've heard and I'm giving thanks because you're growing in faith toward Jesus Christ and your love for each other. And not just love for each other that are in this room, but your love for all the saints. So that means that we, we have a mindset that we're not a part of just a group of people that gather here on Sunday morning, but that we're a part of a group of people who are worshiping Jesus Christ all across the world right now. 
Now, there are people in India and Africa and South America that are today gathering, worshiping, and praising Jesus Christ, and we are a part of their family. In fact, we are more a part of a community with them than we are with our, even our neighbors and our family members that don't know Jesus Christ because we share something that's deep in common. That is the new work that Jesus Christ has done in our hearts. So we talked about how that That'll be the acid test of whether we're growing individually and we're growing as a church plant, whether we're growing in faith and love. And then he said, um, that the God of the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So he's saying that not only am I giving thanks for you that you're growing in faith and love, but he's saying I'm making this prayer for you that you would know. I'm praying for you that that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That He's saying that though you started out really well, I'm giving thanks for it. He's saying that it's possible that you as a believer could live a life and not and, and, and kind of stall out, that, that you would, might know with your head what Jesus Christ has done for you, but you wouldn't know with your heart, that you wouldn't taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we talked about inherent in that is that not only is Paul praying that we would experience that, that we would know that. So the difference between, as I mentioned, it's the difference between you knowing that I like coffee and then me telling you how good my coffee is and how I, I order it from Chicago and they fly it in via airmail and I roast it and I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't roast it, that I grind it fresh. I keep it packed whenever I'm not using it. I keep it packed in a vacuum sealed pack. And then I, I, I grind it fresh, I brew it lovingly, and I enjoy it and savor it. And I told you that it's different than the coffee that you're going to have, whether if you buy it from McDonald's or you make it in your house out of a can of Folgers or you buy it at the gas station. Nothing bad if you like that, but if, if that's what your, your deal is, that's fine. But I'm telling you, that coffee is terrible. But it's the difference between me telling you that my coffee is better and me telling you why it's better, me telling you how it's lovingly grown at certain altitudes and how they roast it and how everything is all carefully contained and govern. I can tell you why it's better. You might say, he seems to be a guy who apparently likes coffee, and he knows things about coffee that nobody should know. Like, it's just something that you drink in the morning, so you can get, have some energy throughout the morning. He seems to know what he's talking about. Maybe it's true, but it's the difference between me telling you that, you saying that's probably true, and you tasting it and knowing it for yourself. And that's what Paul was praying for us. He's saying, I don't want you to be satisfied with just knowing about something. I want you to know it like you know the taste of honey. Like you know how good the barbecue is at your favorite barbecue place. I want you to know it that way. I want you to know it, the difference between seeing a beautiful woman in a picture and knowing your wife personally. Knowing what makes her laugh, what makes her cry knowing that look in her eyes whenever she's, whenever she's tickled about something and that look in her eyes when she's down. It's that difference. He said, I want you to stop and just knowing. I want you to know personally. And then Paul continues with his prayer that, 
Dale hit on last week. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the, the same power, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, whenever he was three days buried in the grave, the same Holy Spirit that came into his body and animated it and gave him life again, that same power is at work in your heart and your life to get today if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Think about that. That knowledge alone should floor us. It should change the way that we live. If we really do believe, if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, if I've become a new creation in him, if I believe that tomorrow morning when I wake up and, I, and I'm going to look for a toilet and I'm going to look for a cup of coffee and then I'm going to have to do some work, I'm going to have to sit down on the computer and I'm going to have to deal with clients and deal with deadlines and deal with uh, all finances and all kinds of things that are going to come on me tomorrow, if It should change the way that I live, the way that I approach my life, if I really believe that the same Holy Spirit, the same power that that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in me, it should change the way that I live. It should change the way that we live. It should change the way that we interact with each other. It should radically, we should be a radically different group of people because the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and among us. Think about that. And then Paul, he's talking about the immeasurable greatness, how Dale talked about how Paul just made up the word. Like, there was no word in the Greek that meant what he wanted to say. So he said, like, I'm going to take these two words and push them together. See, he was Southern. I'm just going to make a whole new word that says what I want it to say. That's what we do in the South. I don't know if you're from the South or, or not, but, like, when we, when, when, there's not a word that expresses what we want to express. We just put two words together, or we just create a whole new word altogether. There's, we have our own language in the South, and that's what Paul did. Paul had a little bit of Southern in him. I, I think Paul would like fried chicken. I'm pretty sure that he would. I'm pretty sure Paul, well, I won't say he would like barbecue, because that might be a little stretch for Paul. Though he did take the gospel to the Gentiles, maybe he would have. But Paul made up a whole new word to say the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he gets into the the thick of it in chapter 2, what we call chapter 2. But remember, this is a letter that Paul's writing to the churches surrounding Ephesus. There's no verse uh, there are verses that are separated and no chapter separations. It was just one big letter that he was writing to them. So he's just finished talking about the greatness of his power, of God's power that is working in us who believe. And how Jesus is above all. And then he said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. If you um, get to know me very long, uh, you'll, you'll find out that 
Uh, not only do I love coffee, um, I think a really good cheeseburger is a gourmet meal. Um, there's a few other things that you'll know about me. Um, one is that I hate heights. I mean, I'm afraid of heights. I'm just going to be I'm gonna come out to you guys. I'm afraid of, and when I say heights, I don't mean like, I don't mean like a hundred feet in the air. I, I mean like stepladder kind of heights. Like that, that, like two steps. I'm okay. Actually, I've I've grown a little bit because you know when you're the when you're the husband and the dad, there's certain expectations that are ahead of you. And like, if a light needs to be changed, it's up in the air. That's my job to do. And so, like, all of a sudden, and, and I'm not, as I said before, I'm not the handiest guy there is. You know, anything that I ha- happen to do that requires a drill or a screwdriver, I feel like like I've like been pretty manly. You know, um, but. So, so like a stepladder right now, I'm kind of okay with, but anything above a stepladder, I am, I'm like white knuckle, I just can't do it. Like if I had to go on the, Megan, Megan, like there's a lot of people in our neighborhood that like to decorate for Christmas. And Megan would like for us to like really decorate outside for Christmas. But that would entail somebody getting on the roof of the house. And that's just not gonna happen. That is, I'll be Scrooge, that is not, going to happen. And I don't let her get up there. So it's just not going to happen altogether. That there's nobody is going up there. That the most, the most, uh, and this will lead into the next thing I was going to say, but the, the, the also something else I'm not very uh, fond of, uh, not quite to the level of heights, but probably pretty close is horror movies. I'll just be honest with you. If that's unmanly, uh, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I can't, I can't hang, can't hang with the horror, horror movies. Uh, and it, the fact, the most horrible thing I've ever seen in my life was I saw a video, and I couldn't find it the past couple of times I've looked, but there's a, a video somewhere out on the interwebs of this man who is climbing a TV tower to do some repair work. Has anybody seen it? There's no music, no editing going on. It's just raw video. The guy's got a, a, a camera on his helmet, and it's just showing him rung by rung climbing this TV antenna. It's, it's literally like a 1,000 feet in the air. And, and so he's climbing this thing, and he's got, you know, those carabiners or whatever that he's clipping on, and then he gets to this point where there's nothing left to clip on. It's just him freestyling on these two spokes sticking out of this tower, and he's just going up like this. And you can see, you can hear him breathing, and you see him like looking out like the horizon. He is, he is a thousand feet above the ground. And then he gets to this point where not only is he now climbing without a cage around him, without a carabiner in, but he's got to pull himself up on top of this kind of platform thing at the top, just totally freestyle. I, I, my stomach almost lost, I, just watching my computer screen, I'm like, this is crazy. I hope he makes $50 million a year because there's, I, have no, I have no idea how somebody does that. I, I could not, that, that is, is so terrifying to me. I, it could not happen. I, I, some people have in their bucket list to jump out of an airplane. I, somebody would have to knock me out and throw me. I would be like a cat, like you're putting a cat in a bath. Like, that's just not going to happen. I am not going out of this plane willfully. Somebody will have to kill me and then throw me out because I'm not willfully jumping out of a plane. I'm not climbing that thing. It's deathly, 
I have no idea why I'm telling you this. It hasn't done anything to do with my, my topic. I am deathly afraid of heights. So some people, that's all I intro to say, some people like, like to watch horror movies. And really, one of the really hot things right now, and it's not just in horror movies, but in general, are zombies. Like they're everywhere, right? Like the zombie apocalypse. They're, they are everywhere. The TV shows, movies, whole series, uh, Books, comic books, there are sites de- online dedicated to zombies. In fact, there, there's a group of people, um, I, I work around one lady, that she, she really believes that like, we're going to have a zombie apocalypse. That, that, that there's going to be, yes, for real, that there's going to be this, um, this uh, bacterial infection that will come, and it kind of eats away your brain, and so like, your, your people will still be alive bodily, but their like, whole senses are gone, and so they're, they're the walking dead. And so I looked up um, what uh, Merriam-Webster had as their definition of a zombie. Um, definition 1A, the supernatural power that according to voodoo belief may enter into and reanimate a dead body. Uh, B, a will-less and speechless human in the West Indies capable only of automatic movement who is held to have died and been supernaturally reanimated. You guys tracking with me? Um, a person held to resemble the so-called walking dead. A person markedly strange in appearance or behavior or a mixed drink made of several kinds of rum, liqueur, and fruit juice. We're not talking about that kind. <laughs> Wikipedia, which is the source of all things true, <laughs> says, um, and it has a whole article about um, being a, about zombieism, I guess. Uh, but the part, one part it says, zombie fiction is now a sizable subgenre of horror, usually describing a breakdown of civilization occurring when most of the population become flesh-eating zombies. Apparently there was one author, author who uh, started that kind of idea of a zombie being somebody who eats the flesh. So this is fascination, fascination with zombies in our culture right now. And if you think about it, it is kind of fascinating just to think about somebody being the walking dead. That's, that's, that's the scary part, right? That because if somebody's already dead, how do you kill them? And if somebody's, if somebody's the walking dead, like, they don't have any sort of idea of right or wrong. They're, they're indiscriminate when it comes to the, the, the horror that they're going to cause. When it comes to the, the bad things that they can do, they don't pay any attention to whether you're a kid or you're a woman or you're a man or you've done something wrong to them or you just have to be sitting beside the, the sidewalk having, having lunch. They, they don't care. They're just the walking dead. And this scripture that we're reading here, Ephesians 2, 1, he starts off by saying, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So think about that. He's saying you were dead, but then he's saying that you walked in those, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Here, he's saying that apart from knowing Jesus Christ and apart from him remaking you and breathing life into you that you're simply the walking dead. You're simply the walking dead. That, 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 that you're not, 
The problem isn't just that you need to be, have a better uh, argument that'll convince you of the truth of Christianity, or he's saying that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Have you guys ever heard the illustration about coming to Jesus that, you know, like you're kind of out in the sea and you're treading water and you're drowning and you're kind of going under, and then, you know, Jesus is the guy that comes along in the boat and he throws you the, the, you know, the circle lifesaver thing and you grab a hold of it and then you're saved? Well, that's not the picture of what Scripture says we were like apart from Christ. He says, apart from Christ, you are dead. So in that scenario, you're not the guy who, or the girl who's almost drowning. You are actually already drowned. You are at the bottom of the ocean. You are dead. You are decaying. You are buried. You have no life left in you. And Jesus comes, and he dives into the water. He goes down picks up your lifeless, breathless body, decaying body, off of the floor of the ocean, pulls you up onto dry land, gives you new skin and organs and body. He breathes life into you and you come back to life or you come to life. He's saying, apart from Christ, we are all zombies. We're just walking dead. We're, we're walking around and, and, and like there's a movement, but nobody's home. We were dead. The problem isn't that we are sick and therefore we can be treated. We are dead. That's that we, fact that we need new life, a new nature. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. We'll start in verse 3. Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So it's this picture that, that instead of, we, we often in our modern society, we view people as generally either good or generally neutral. Now, I'm, people are generally born good and something happens to make us go bad, or we're born generally neutral, and we kind of choose which direction we're going to go. And so some people choose bad, and some people choose good. But that's not the picture that Paul is painting here. He's painting the picture of the walking dead whose eyes have been blinded. And so they're, they're walking around just feeling around in the darkness, and Jesus Christ is there and it's plain and clear that this is the way that you should go, but apart from him opening your eyes, apart from him breathing life into your dead body, that you're just mumbling, you're just feeling around, stumbling around in the darkness, looking for something. Have you ever been in a bad relationship or maybe in a bad situation at work or a bad situation at church or in a, in a, in a, in a dysfunctional family, dysfunctional relationship, and when you're in it, like, you know, like, this is kind of messed up. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. But people who are outside that are looking into you being in that relationship or being in that family, they're like, this is crazy. Like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Have you ever experienced that? Like, whenever you finally leave that job or you, you get out of that relationship or you you're move out of the house, like, you realize, like, wow, that is really more messed up than I even realized when I was in it. Because whenever you're in a situation, you can't get perspective on it. You can't see how messed up and how bad it is. That's what it's like to the people who are the walking dead. 
They're stumbling around. Their eyes are blinded. They're feeling around. They're, they're moving around. They, they think they have it figured out, but the problem is that they are in the middle of darkness. And they lack perspective. He, Paul, first of all, whenever he's describing the state of, apart from Christ, he says that we are dead. So we were dead, and then he said because we were dead, we acted like a dead person. We acted like dead people. Look at, uh, later on he said, verse, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and when she once walked, then he says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So it says there were three compelling influences that were, that, were, that were directing our lives. So the picture is not only are we dead, not only were we blind and feeling around and stumbling around, but he gives the picture that we're, we're almost like marionettes, that we feel like we're independent and we got our deal going on, but we're really, there are really three factors that are controlling us, that are kind of directing the strings and making us go in certain directions. And he says, the first thing he says is the course of this world. Have you guys noticed, I keep saying this, but have you guys noticed, like, this world is not, like, a pleasant place? Like, mankind is capable of incredible evil. Incredible evil. You guys heard about the, the guy in, is it Pennsylvania, Gosnell? The, the, um, is that his name, Gosnell? The, the, he's a, he was a, an abortion doctor who was actually killing babies some after they were born. Not just late-term abortions, but after they were born. Have you heard some of the horrendous stories out of World War II, the things that, happened, that the Nazis did to the Jews? Have you heard the stories about today, the, the women, girls, children who are stuck in sex trafficking and how they are tricked and trapped and then they are stuck and sold like slaves to people who are willing to pay for them to use them for their sexual favors? Have you heard of horrendous things that parents have done to their kids? that brothers and sisters have done to each other. It's not just the big things that garner attention like 9-11 and the Boston bombing. It's all the little things that we do to each other as humans every day. Why? Or we know that people know those things are bad, those things are wrong. In general, as a society, we say we shouldn't be doing those things. We shouldn't be lying, stealing, cheating. We shouldn't be cheating on our wives and our kids, breaking up homes and families, but yet it happens over and over again. The story is repeated with every generation in every home. Why? Because that's the course to this world. That's just the way the river is flowing. And when you're in it, you just go with it and you don't even realize exactly how far and how fast you've gone in the other direction. It's like when you're out in the ocean and there's a strong current and one minute you look up and you see you know, your wife who's sitting in the chair and then the next minute you look up and she's like 100 yards down because the, the, the current just pushed you without you even knowing. When you're in it, you don't realize that you're even being pushed, that you're following the course of this world. 
the current that's pushing you in a direction. And so the picture that Paul is painting is that not only are you dead and decaying and lifeless and blind, but then you're being, that you're poor, your your decaying, dead, lifeless, blind body is just being pushed with the current that is pushing you in a particular direction. It's the course of this world. You don't, we don't end up wanting to go in that direction, do we? I I don't know how many people as kids say, you know what, I want to grow up, start a family, have two kids, have a good job, cheat on my wife, and lose it all. Like, that's my plan. But when you find yourself going in that direction, it's just the way the current takes you. Rarely do we go into our career and say, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cheat my bosses repeatedly over time, and I'm going to steal, or whenever I'm over the money in in my department, and we're really in a tight spot at home, and I'm going to plan on, I'm going to skim some off the top in order to help us get through with the intention of paying back, but I'm going to get caught up in, you know, using that money, and then five years down the road, I'm going to technically owe the business a million dollars and get caught and get put in jail. We don't say that's the direction I want to go. It's just the course the world takes us. We are blind, lifeless, being carried with the course of this world. But then it says, not only is it just the general course of the world, but he says, the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's saying there's another force that's at work. There's a dark force who is, from the beginning, has been set against God. You know, we, actually, I find it interesting, as, as a young person, some of it is the, the church tradition that I grew up in, uh, there was a lot of talk about the devil, a lot of talk about Satan, but you don't hear too much talk about it, or I don't, in the circles that I go in. There's not a whole lot of talk about Satan. But the truth is that before the world began, that there was an angel who decided that he could be equal with God or greater than God, and he led a rebellion against God. He hates God. And he's the one in the beginning when God created us man in his image with all kinds of promise. Don't you guys get that feeling sometimes that, like, man, man has all kinds of promise. We should be great. We should be doing, we've done great things, but man, we sh- mankind should be even better than it is. And he's the one that came in and saw the image of God, and he tempted Eve and Adam in the garden, and we fell. And the whole time he's been leading a rebellion against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And throughout all of history, he's the one that holds the marionette strings that's guiding us in particular directions. He's setting the course of this world, and he's, he's placing just the right things in our path that he knows that that's the direction that will, that will cause us to go in a particular direction. Certain things that some of us are tempted to when others aren't. He's the prince of the power of the air, He's at work in rebellion against God to draw all mankind against him. And then he says, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So he's saying that there are, not only is it, the course of the world and Satan himself, but it's just the general desires of the flesh. You know? You know how um, 
Sometimes people say, hey, you weren't thinking with, your, with this head, you were thinking with another head. You know what I'm talking about? Like you weren't thinking up here, you were thinking down here. You guys, are you guys tracking with me? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like that's what's going on. It's just the desires of the flesh. There, there are certain desires, not just sexual, but there's certain desires of your flesh, certain, certain things that, that you, certain cravings that you have at certain times that just cause us to go in particular directions, right? Like afterwards, you think, what was I thinking? And you're like, man, I wasn't thinking. I was just craving something. And that could be all kinds of things. It could be sex. It could be food. It can be uh, just all kinds of sensual pleasures, things that our body craves and desires that draw us in particular directions. So he paints the picture of us being humans who are dead, lifeless, at the bottom of the ocean, decaying, who are also blind, and yet we're walking, we're living, we're doing things. And he said, as we're doing things, we're just being carried along with the course, the current of this world that's being governed by the marionette master of Satan himself. And then we have just the desires of our flesh just pulling us particular directions. He says, so we were dead. Because we were dead, we acted like dead people. And then he says, look at this. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Like the rest of mankind. Not only were uh, are we dead? And so we acted like dead people, but he says that everybody is dead. Everybody is dead. By our nature, we're by nature children of wrath. That it's not just that there are some bad people and some good people. He says we were all born dead. And we inherited that from our father Adam and our mother Eve who died in the garden whenever they decided they could be equal or greater than God himself. They followed their father, the one before them, the one the marionette master, Satan himself, who thought the same thing. And so we followed after them. It's just part of our genes now. We are born by nature, children of wrath. So that means that not only are were people dead, and so we acted like dead people, but he says we all, we're dead. There's no one who escapes from that. There's nobody that's better than anybody else. See, the problem is that a lot of us have is that we tend to think that we are kind of good people and other people are the bad people that do the bad things. Like the people who murder and steal. or the, We hear stories about a, a man who tore up his family because he cheated on this other woman for the past three years and it all came out and the family fell apart. Or we hear about the people who did the, the Boston bombings. We think, man, they must be messed up people, and they are. But the problem is that we are all born in that same pool. We're not looking at bad people from the outside in. We are, are part of that ourselves. That ev- Nobody is born who it gets to be exempt from being a part of the walking dead. We are all born dead. We act like dead people because we all, by nature, by nature and by choice, are children of wrath. It's just the way that we were. And then not only that, but then it ends in saying that we were by nature children of wrath. 
Wrath is also something that we don't talk about much in modern America and modern American Christianity. It's not popular. It's not comfortable. It's something that, that I believe in. I believe in the devil. devil. I believe in wrath. I believe in that hell is a real place. But I'll be honest with you. Whenever I get in front of a group of people and I have to mention any of those things, it kind of like stops before I can get it out because it's such not a part of our culture. It seems so... It seems so wrong and so mean for there to be a God who's a God of wrath. We want a, a God, and we believe in a God of love. And that's generally because we believe people are generally good or generally morally neutral. And so if they've gone a wrong way, it's just because they were influenced by bad influences. But the truth that we're reading here is that we are all by nature dead. That we're all by nature set against God. That we are all by nature we inherited from our father Adam in rebellion against God himself. And because of that, we are objects of God's wrath, that it hangs over us like the sword of Damocles all the time, just hanging there, just waiting. And and that sounds like, man, God must be pretty mean. Like, I've done some bad things, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or uh, I've done some bad things, but couldn't God just give me a break? But the truth is that if God is going to be a good God, who's not only loving, but he's good and just, then Things that are wrong and bad and sinful have to be paid back. If you have a judge who you, you appear before the judge and you think it's okay because you were fought 10 miles over the speed limit and you, you beg him for mercy and he gives you mercy, like that's cool, right? Like we think, man, that's a cool judge. But if that same judge has somebody who horribly raped and murdered five women and that person stands in front of him and he says, I'm going to give you another chance, we say that's not right. Justice was not served. What's the first thing that we think about after the Boston bombings occurred? The first thought that we had was, that needs to be made right. they got to catch those people. That's the first thing that we want the president to say when he stands up in front of everybody. He want, he wants, we want him to say, we, we mourn with those who have experienced loss. Our prayers are with them. And then we want the next thing that he says is, all of the authority and power of the American government is going to be behind finding out whoever did this and making sure that justice is brought to bear upon them. Right? That's what we want him to say. But we are the ones who both by nature and by choice, and that's what he says in verse one, and you were dead, and the trespasses, it's the individual things that you have done, and sins, it's a whole state that we live in, and the trespasses and sins, you were dead in those. And a holy and righteous God cannot let any unrighteousness go. And his wrath rests upon you and me. Not only were we dead, but we are objects by nature. We were children of wrath. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? But let that sit on you. Let that sit on me for a minute. Because you know what? We cannot understand and appreciate the fact that the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, is at work and is at present in your life. You can't appreciate the, the beauty of that and the power of that. You can't understand the, the beauty that is found in the cross of Jesus Christ unless you understand the fact that not only were you a sinner and you need to be saved from your sins, but you need to be saved from the just, righteous wrath of God that was hanging over your head justly. You were dead so you acted like a dead person, 
we were all dead. Nobody escaped it. And we were by nature children of wrath. Look at real quick at John 3.16. This is sort of an example that uh, I want to give you guys that, you know, we feel comfortable when we want to talk about God being a God of love and how awesome he is. And, you know, the, the temptation as a Christian, and I've, I've said this, is, uh, well, I haven't said the thing about, well, it's, it's sort of the idea is that more people will become Christians if we could convince people God's pretty cool, right? And so I, we went through a phase, we were actually very terrible at it, but we went through a phase in the church that I grew up in that, like, what we're going to do then is we're going to show people how cool God is. Like God can have cool music and cool people, and so we're going to dress cool and have cool music. And the problem was we were actually terrible at it. So when we were trying to have dress cool and have cool music, we actually looked even lamer than we ever did before. But the whole problem is that we were, doing the wrong, we were going down the wrong trail. The job isn't for us to convince people that God is cooler and God's an awesome dude that you want to hang out with. I don't need to convince you that God's the kind of guy that you want to have over to watch a football game with. We need to show a God who is worthy of worship and awe. And so look at this. It's, like a, it's, a, it's an awesome verse that contains the gospel. It's sort of the poster verse of how God is a God of love. And he's a cool guy. You've probably seen the signs at baseball games and whatnot. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's true that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that's awesome, right? And that's awesome, awesomely great news. But look at the, the news in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He's saying apart from believing in Jesus Christ, you are dead, and the wrath of God hangs over you. See, Paul is constantly in his letters, he's doing it here. He's in other letters, in other places in, the, in Scripture. He's constantly reminding us of where we once were. Because until you, until you grasp and appreciate how, where you once were, you cannot appreciate where you are now. He's trying to cause us to be stirred, to be grateful, to, to worship God, to, to respond with our lives. He's, he's setting up, see, this whole first half of Ephesians is doctrine, and the second half are all super practical things about how do you be a good husband and a wife and a, a child and a parent, and how do you live a life when uh, people who you know, are uh, you know, talking about each other and all kinds of things. How do we do that? And he's laying the foundation is from understanding who you once were and where you are now. Where you once were and where you are now. See, if uh, there were winning numbers in the Powerball lottery last night, right? I think there were. I think I was, what was it up to, like 600, 700 million dollars? 600, 600 million dollars somebody won. I don't know how many winners, but we know there's some winning numbers. Now, whoever wins that is gonna be super grateful and super excited. But if the person that wins that is already somebody who's living in a 30,000 square foot house on the ocean or on a river or on some golf course somewhere, and they have a four-car garage, and they have somebody that cleans the house for them, and somebody that drives the car for them, and cuts the grass, and washes their clothes, and picks up the poop from their dogs and cats. And I, I saw, anyway, I, 
I, I saw this uh, on one documentary about this family, super rich family in Orlando, and they had like 18 dogs. And they, like, in the middle of the, of the economic downturn, they had to let go, like, most of their 20-member household staff. And they were showing all across the house, like, there was just dog poop sitting everywhere. Like, the animals, like, they had lizards and stuff. They actually died because the staff was the people that picked up the dog poop and fed the animals. Like, so if that's the situation that you're in and you win $600 million, you're going to think, this is a really, you're going to be super excited. But if you are $100,000 in debt and you don't know where your payment for your car is going to come tomorrow and you are really concerned that your lights are going to be cut off next week when it's like the final due date, not just like the, the first pink slip, but the final due date is coming, then you're going to be something more than grateful you guys, I have two younger sisters, and so I have seen the movie Annie more times than I would care to confess to you guys. I could, I could sing the songs right now. I've seen it so many times in my life. But you know what's so endearing about the story of the orphan Annie? is the fact that she was an orphan. And that she didn't come into the mansion and appreciate that it was a mansion. She appreciated that she was in a home. She didn't appreciate that Daddy Warbucks was a billionaire. She appreciated that he was her dad. She didn't appreciate that she lived in a, a, a bedroom that was the size of this gym. She appreciated the fact that she had a bed that night. And if you and I understand that apart from Christ, that we are the walking dead, that we are blind, we are dead, we are decaying, we are stumbling about in life and we think we have things figured out, but it ends up being a dead end. And we realize that the wrath of God was hanging over us. At any moment, the sword could have fallen and cut us off, but God in his mercy kept the sword back and finally one day he found us in our orphan state and he made us his child and he breathed his life into us. And all of a sudden, not only were you suddenly a child of wrath, but you were a child of the king. That you, that you all of a sudden were, went from being a, a marionette puppet of Satan to being somebody who God had breathed life into and his spirit was dwelling in and upon and his favor had been placed upon you when you didn't deserve it. That you went from being dead to being alive. You went to being somebody who was stumbling around in the, the darkness to somebody whose eyes were open, not because you were smarter or better than anybody else, but because God came in and breathed life into you when you didn't ask him to, that he came and opened your eyes, opened your eyelids and gave you sight to see what life was all about, that when he did that, all of a sudden, you'll respond and worship to him. All of a sudden, it doesn't become a big thing that, that he says that your money and your life and your time and your marriage and your children and your spouse that you haven't met yet, that they all belong to me. All of a sudden, that doesn't become such a big ask anymore. Because you were delivered from death to life. And that's what Paul was reminding us. So what effect should this truth have on our daily lives? 
By the way, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 should be a go-to verse. If you're waking up and it's one of those like yucky days, yucky mornings, and you're not even sure if you're a Christian, you're not sure if you want to keep on going down this road, like this should be a passage that you open up to. Read Ephesians 1 and 2 and hear all about what God has done for you, where he brought you from, and where he has brought you to. What effect should it have on our daily lives? Number one, we should respond in gratefulness. Number two, we should respond in worship. Number three, we should respond in awe. Not because you make yourself respond in those things, but because if you are the orphan Annie, if you win the lottery and today you're living in, a, uh, in some rundown shack and you're not sure if you can even stay in that shack because you're not sure you can keep the lights on or heat it or feed your kids even cornflakes tomorrow and you win the lottery, you Nobody has to tell you to respond in gratefulness and worship and awe. You you respond that way because you are aware of where you have been brought from. That's one way it should have an effect on our daily lives. But then I'll run through this list and we'll be done. What effect should this truth have on us in the way that we view other people? Because the truth is that if we're saying that the problem with people isn't that they need to be... um, isn't that they need to just simply become a Christian, but they need, to, they need to be brought from death to life, then we're saying something big, right? We're saying that those who know Christ are living and those who don't are dead. And that, that's, that's, a, that's a large line that divides us from other people. And it can sound like it's looking down on people, but what effect should it have on us? Well, number one, it should humble us. It should humble us. Because if we realize that not only was I dead, but we were all dead, that it wasn't my smartness, it wasn't my uh, acute uh, mental capacity, it wasn't that I was better than anybody else that brought me to Christ, it was simply that he breathed life into me where there was no life before. That humbles me. When I interact with other people, I'm not going to look down on them because I'm one of them. We were all part of that same pool. It should humble us. Number two, that it should cause us not to be surprised at man's ability to do evil. Megan and I talk about how sometimes we, when we sit down with somebody and they, they tell us about their past or they tell us something they've done or a situation they found themselves in, that we're not really shocked anymore. And part of that reason is that if you understand that we are all in that same pool, then Man's capability to do evil things to other men shouldn't, shouldn't shock and surprise us. So when somebody comes into to our community here, somebody comes into a community group, somebody comes into your life, a neighbor or whoever, and they tell you like what they do with their life or things that they've done or things that they've experienced, it shouldn't shock you and cause you to think like we need to ostracize them because they're doing this bad thing or they've done this bad thing or they're a part of this bad situation because you understand that that's the pool that we're in as human beings. We swim, we all swim in the same pool together. We shouldn't be surprised at man's ability to do evil because we don't believe that man is inherently good or inherently neutral. We believe that man is born blind and dead. Uh, number one, it should humble us. Number two, it should, we should cause us not to be surprised at man's ability to do evil. Number three, it, we should remember that we aren't trying to make people better We shouldn't try to make people morally better people. That's not our goal. The goal in planting a church, the goal in you living life as a missionary in your workplace and in your neighborhood, isn't so that people would stop sleeping around. 
It's not so that people would stop doing drugs and it's not so that people should stop looking at porn or though we hope all those things happen, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is to make people morally better people. See, that's where a lot of Christianity in America has gotten derailed in the past 20 years is that we tried to make, um, we saw America going like being less moral and so we poured millions and millions of dollars into trying to legislate morality. So we try to hold on to this vestige that America should be moral, but that's fighting the wrong battle. People aren't going to be betterly, better morally people, morally better people. And that's not our goal. Our goal isn't that people should stop sleeping around and stop being drunk. Our goal is that people who are dead should be brought to life. That's our goal. Number four, should humble us, should cause us not to be surprised at man's ability to do evil. It should cause us to understand that we're not trying to make people more morally better. Number four, it should cause us to think that we are looking for a miracle to occur in people's lives. Not win an argument or be more convincing or cooler in our presentation of who God is. We're looking for a miracle to occur. So I'm not trying to hone my ability to argue the truth of Christianity, to, though there's truth there. That I'm not trying to argue to you that the text is, is true and has been preserved throughout the ages in textual criticism. That's not the point. I'm not trying to be more convincing or cooler. The point is that we want to see people, a miracle occur, because anytime you see somebody brought from death to life, what's happened? A miracle has happened. If we heard about a dead person who was three days dead, who suddenly became alive, not like zombie alive, but really alive, we would say that's a miracle that has occurred. And it's a greater miracle than that when somebody who has been spiritually dead all of a sudden has their eyes open and life breathes into them and so that they see the beauty that's found in the face of Jesus Christ. We want to see a miracle happen. So that's what we want to see here as a part of Doxa. That's what we want to see in our daily lives as we interact with people who don't know him. We're not trying to win an argument. We're not trying to be more convincing. We're not trying to show people that he's cooler than they thought he was or Christians are cooler than he thought. The truth is that's, a, that's, that's going to be a losing argument anyway. Most Christians I know aren't very cool. It's just, they just aren't. That's a losing argument. The truth, that we, what we want to see happen is a miracle occur and there be life where there wants death. And so we want to be people who constantly remember where we were, dead, blind, stumbling around in the dark, the walking dead, and realize that God has breathed life into us now, and a miracle has happened, and we want to see that occur in the, people, in the lives of people who are around us that we care about, our family, our friends. We're not trying to create converts. We want to see them come to life like we've experienced ourselves. Let's pray. Father, as we um, get ready to sing uh, more to you about your greatness and your goodness, as we prepare to uh, partake of the table of your broken body and your shed blood for us, God, we, um, I pray that you would help us to remember. I'm always talking about the fact that we need to remember, but that's what you've given us these things for. You've given us the tangible bread and the juice. You've given us uh, Abilities and time to 
gather together as a group, as a community, to sing about your goodness and your greatness to us. You give us the time and the ability to have relationships with each other so we can live in community with each other and remind each other of where we've once been and what you've brought us to. God, we all have stories in here. Some of us grew up in church. and Maybe we're generally good people. Some of us have done some really crazy and bad things, and we've been down another path. But no matter what the background looks like, there was a moment when we were dead and the next moment we were alive. There was a moment we were orphans. We, were, we, we didn't just not have much money. We were in the negative. And you brought us out of that orphan state and breathed life into us and made us alive. You caused our eyes to be open. You gave us a new heart and you made us your children. We didn't make ourselves your children. You made us your children. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to live in that light, that we live grateful lives, that we live lives that are constantly in awe of who you are, lives that are full of worship, lives that are humble, and lives that are, um, that are truly caring to see a miracle occur in the lives of people around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray.